it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. And this week, we have a postcard from Canada as we catch up with brewer Matt Hennessy, who's currently brewing with Collective Arts Brewing in Hamilton, Ontario. Matt is a podcast listener and sometimes correspondent, so I was keen to catch up with him to find out a little bit more about how he came to be brewing in Canada, but also to find out a little bit more about Canada's brewing and drinking culture, which is a little hard to define from this distance. Matt did contact me after the chat to let me know that in our discussion on the size of the industry over there, he confused the total number of breweries in Canada with the number in Ontario. The actual numbers between Canada and Australia are pretty much on par, he says, with Canada having just over a thousand breweries. I hope you enjoy this conversation about Matt and Canada and beer and all of the things we love talking about as much as I did. Matt Hennessy, welcome to Beer as a Conversation. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Oh, mate, thank you. And uh, yeah, look, for listeners who maybe don't know you as a, a, an Australian brewery identity, it's because you're actually in Canada. But you you reached out to us recently about a podcast um, that, that, that we did, um, and I suddenly realised that you're back overseas. So maybe maybe give us the uh, who is Matt Hennessy pitch. In a nutshell, uh, I'm Matt Hennessy. I'm lead brewer at Collective Arts Brewing in Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, so we're just on the side of the uh, Great Lakes here. Um, yeah, I moved over here in 2017. Managed to pick myself up a job as a brewer. And yeah, I love it over here. It's great. How did you get started in, in, in brewing? If we go well back initially, I, uh, I was at university studying forensic science and criminology. And I went on exchange to Michigan and just discovered the beer scene over here or in the US at least that I'd never really uh, seen before. Uh, this is all these, you know, this crazy artwork and different flavors and things that I'd never really seen. And so when I was traveling around the US for a bit afterwards, I just went to all of these local breweries and bought a few books on beer and got really interested in it. And then when I got home, I started home brewing. And when I graduated, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I heard about this uh, postgraduate uh, certificate you could do at Federation <laughs> University in Ballarat. So I applied for it and I got in and a couple of years later, I graduated with that and uh, got myself a job at the, the old James Squire brew house at the Portland hotel. Uh, and I got to, you know, do some assistant brewing in there and then, yeah, then eventually made my way up and got myself a job at collective arts. It's <laughs> like in a nutshell, I guess, how I managed to get over here. Well, tell us about collective arts. Sure. So uh, we're an art and brewing themed brewery, I guess you could call it. So uh, the, the focus of this place is to promote art and artists from around the world. And each one of our beers at each point has four different designs on it. So you say for about four pack, it might have four different uh, pieces of art on it. And those will change up every three months or so. So we'll do a new series, a new run of, those, uh, new run of pieces of artwork. And uh, all the art is just submitted by artists to us online. So I think we've had 33,000 submissions so far from artists and paid over $375,000 to artists for their artwork. And uh yeah, it's a, I just thought it was a really cool concept and it was one of the main reasons that I wanted to work at this brewery because I'd heard about them while I was working in Australia. I think at Beer Deluxe in Hawthorne, they had some of their beers. And so when I came over, I thought it was a really cool idea. 
So, uh, yeah, we operate a brew house here. It typically runs 24-7, uh, 60 to 100 heck brews. And uh, I really like the beer. So. <laughs> How did you get into brewing? Um, yeah, what, what, was, what was your – was it something that – Actually, if I can ask the, the the question, I'm always reluctant to ask. How old are you first? Just to sort of gauge where you were uh, fit in in the in, in the uh, you know, lifespan of craft beer. I'm 29 now. 29. Okay, so so you're what I would call a craft beer native. You were drinking legally uh, well after Little Creatures was embedded in the in in the uh, beer industry. Yeah, I uh, remember when I was 21 years old, and I remember I had my first Founders beer in Michigan. So uh, that was really the 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 game changing beer for me that I, was, I had, it was an eight and a half percent Scotch ale and I'd never tried anything like it in my life. Cause I was used to drinking a pale ale for me back then was very adventurous. So, uh, to go straight to a Scotch ale like that was very tasty and very interesting. So, uh, I opened up this whole new world and then, uh, yeah, I decided to try and make some myself. Okay. So and what was your progression? Did you do the homebrewer, um, routes? I think, geez, this is interesting. I wonder if I can make it myself or did you go yeah. straight into the professional route? Well, no, I started home brewing uh, while I was in my final year at university first. And then when I finished, I thought, you know, I'm actually pretty good at this and I like doing it and I'm really passionate about the industry. So I thought I'd go study it a bit further at university. Was it always the dream to travel? I guess brewing is one of those, you know, international passports to work if you can get the you know, relevant work visas internationally. Well, I'd always loved traveling. Like at university, I went on exchange four times because I just really loved it. And then... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, eventually I, I, I'd been working uh, in bars for a really long time and I just decided I needed to, uh, you know, go on a trip. I hadn't really taken any time off in a while and so I ended up uh, flying out of the US and buying a van and living out of the back of it for five months while I was just driving across the country. And then, uh, I'll be honest, it got too cold to sleep in the van because it was December. <laughs> and I, uh, my friend said, I know someone that works at a brewery up in Canada and uh, she sent him his uh, sent me his contact information. I looked up in fa- I looked him up on Facebook, and we had twenty seven mutual friends. Because it turns out he used to work in Melbourne. His name was Dan Johnston. I'm sure some people will probably know that know him. He used to work at Forrester's Hole in uh, in Melbourne, I believe. And uh, yeah, he was one of the salespeople for uh, Collective Arts. And I managed to get myself a job pasteurizing cider for a day. And at the end of the day, they managed to give me a, a full time work packaging. And then a couple of months later, I kept asking and they said all right and put me on the brew team and a few years later i'm lead brewer which is great <laughs> and so well tell us a little bit about the styles that you, you're doing there you've given us a bit of the to the background to the to the business um what's what's the styles that you're doing what are the trends uh in, in ontario i guess the trends are somewhat similar to the uh, somewhat uh, the hype beers i guess that you'd see on social media in australia at the moment a lot of hazy double ipas a lot of normal hazy ipas fruit sours imperial stouts they're the main hype beers and we I mean, we do a lot of those, I'll be honest. Um, and then we do have some more sessionable beers, like a Hazy Pale. I'm drinking a Citrus Blondale right now, um, which is one of ours that I really like as well. And then, uh, yeah, the industry here is a little bit different, I guess, because I don't think we're quite as constrained by the tax laws that really constri- that the Australian industry has. Because when I went back even before last for a while, I was just a, it kind of shocked me to see how many of the, the beers that you'd see on the taps are quite low alcohol. Most like most uh, core beers for most breweries seem to be below five percent, or at least around the five percent mark. Whereas here, you'd go into a bar, and a lot of them you'd see would be pushing six or more, as like the main sort of strength and the main sort of beers that they buy and drink in the craft industry. And, and that's one of the things that fascinates me internationally about the the, the, the brewing industry is that you know things like tax laws. Um, they they do have um, you know maybe not an immediate impact, but they you know just the the constant business pressures that they put on 
does drive um, innovation in certain way. And, and Australia does seem to be a leader in, certainly in, in, in the take-up of consumer mid-strength um, beers, but then also with, with craft operating in that same environment, craft brewers seem to have been very innovative in developing you know, beers under 5% that still have a lot of flavour that doesn't seem to be getting the same sort of, you know, attention and drive internationally. It, I mean, is that a reasonable perception so far as Canada goes? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't. I just don't see as many uh, session beers here as much, and a lot of brewers will make one specific one or a couple of them. Whereas I notice a lot of the core ranges of breweries in Australia seem to be quite lower ABV. I don't know many breweries that have core range high ABV beers that you'd see that often. I could definitely be wrong about that, but this just seems to be less prevalent from what I've seen since coming over here. So, so what what's the drinking culture? You know, if, if people come into to the brew pub, um, do they just come in and have one or two big flavoured beers for the experience, or do they come in and have more? And you know, uh, you know, I would imagine um, suffer the impacts uh, as, as a result because one of the things that you hear um, over here is that you know. Beer is such a low margin volume uh, requirement for, for breweries to to be profitable. That's you know one one of the challenges. You know, um, I remember Chuck Hahn always saying, you know, you don't want someone going in to a, a pub saying, oh, you know, this is awesome, but I'm only going to have the one pint because a you know, brewery can't mm-hmm. survive on that. Yeah, there is definitely an emphasis on session beers here. Like we do have three or four of them in our core range, but there's less emphasis on them than you would have in Australia. So okay. when I was working there, I'd, there's so many of the tanks you'd see would be tied up at the pale ale because that's just what most people want to drink. Whereas the the diversity in, in the range here, people focus less on the one session beer and they'll make a much broader range of things. And some of them will be low alcohol, but there will be usually, I mean, I think our core range is like 11 beers. So yeah, it's definitely a little bit broader. And that's uh, all 11 are packaged and go out through retail? Yep. yep. In Australia, we've got the the federalised states, but you know things like alcohol, um, you know, like excise is federal. Um, states have, you know, distinct um, liquor laws, um, but they still seem to be reasonably similar. I um, mean, you know, Queensland's got the detached bottle shop, model and uh, you know d- different elements the the Canadian uh, system is every um, province uh, controls their own liquor licensing as well don't they yeah it's vastly different and uh, I think we just started selling our beer into Quebec which is the next state over and that was only recently because it's been so hard to get beer in there it's easier to sell beer internationally across the US than it is to put it into the next Canadian province over why is that I, I don't understand the rule. It's it's a really old, archaic rule from prohibition, I, I believe. I couldn't. I can't tell you the specifics. I'm sorry, but it, it's yeah something to do with an old rule about not being able to sell into into provincially. It's yeah, uh, it doesn't make much sense to me. But <laughs> then again, um, a lot of liquor laws don't make so much sense to me, to be honest. But well, and that's yeah a drum that I like to beat. So how does that, in terms of the thinking of the business, um, I, I guess that would make it really hard. You know, in in Australia, if I start a little brew pub or, you know, like a little brew pub with a small production idea, you know, once I start maxing out capacity, I might expand and then look at, you know, maybe 
you know, always with the intention of maybe getting into state because there is no, you know, if I can get people to want to buy it, there's nothing to stop me apart from the physical shipping costs of getting beer from Queensland to New South Wales, for example. How does that change the business mindset knowing that you can't automatically set up and just go, well, we're doing well here, let's move to the next state? It seems to be much more of a focus on being a local small pub here than I, I believe there's almost as many, if not about the same many, the same number of uh, breweries just in Ontario as there are in Australia for a province of 16 million or about, I think that number is right here. Yeah. Around 16 million. And there's they a lot of them are just brew pubs and they don't, I don't think they look to expand and grow necessarily there. They don't, yeah, there's not that trajectory for them. They, they can just operate and survive as the small facilities without that, dream of being a huge production facility elsewhere. And I think some of that is definitely due to the, uh, there's the government controlled liquor store here called the LCBO, Liquor Control Board of Ontario, I believe it is. So it's like an actual government controlled liquor store. So you can't just go to any corner liquor store and sell your, your beer. It has to go through the LCBO. And yeah, so it's definitely a different system. So the with as many breweries uh in Ontario, as there are nationally here, I, I presume they're all much smaller. Um, yeah, there's a lot of small ones. And I feel like I have a much better grasp on breweries. And I mean, obviously, I worked in the industry and I know that no one know them more in Australia from working there. But there's just so many in Ontario that I've just never heard of because they're so small and they don't really have reach. And, and they're just like a, a, a local tavern or a local corner pub. Yeah. Obviously, we're in, still in a pandemic and, and such over here. And I didn't obviously want to drive too far away and travel too much. But when the, the restrictions were slightly eased here, we'd take weekend trips out to some local places. And the next city over for me has 30 breweries or at least 30 breweries. And I looked at it and I was like, that, that town is so small. How does it have that many brew pubs? And they're good too. Like they're, they're, the quality is high. And I'd just not heard of them because I hadn't thought to Google the number of breweries in the city across from me. So, what's the tavern culture then? You know, or what's the pub culture there? You know, are, are there a lot of um, what you know we call you know hotels or pubs, or you know uh, the, the Australian concept of a pub, or is, is their idea of bars different? I think it's more like Melbourne in Toronto, definitely than Hamilton. So, Hamilton's a city of five hundred and eighty odd thousand people, and I kind of equate it to being like bigger Geelong, I guess. Because, uh, you know, it's about an hour from the main city and, like, there's one main university here and there's one big brewery here and that sort of stuff. So it, it, it has a very Geelong-esque sort of vibe to me and there's just less hospitality venues than there is obviously down in uh, in Toronto. But there's not that same sort of craft pub mentality in this city as there is in Melbourne. But then again, Melbourne's kind of a beast. That's where I worked and this is where my... Uh, my experience is from which is why i refer to melbourne more than anywhere else but i don't know the, the the pub culture in melbourne is definitely a lot stronger than it is here it's more of a uh classic pub versus new craft beer bar here so you'd have like the old style classic pubs or you'd have like the new you know younger crowd bars yeah more so than you'd have the the pub culture I mean, which raises a good question. What is the, you know, I made the um, reference to you being 29, so you were born into a craft beer world as opposed to, you know, the you know people who are around about 40, um, you know, their first beers were mainstream lagers and, you know, they had to discover craft beer. 
Um, what what's the, the 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 cultural breakdown of craft beer um, there? Is is it divided along generational lines, or you know, are older drinkers much more open to um, craft beers? There seems to be a pretty big split between bars that have a good beer, like a, a broad beer selection, and bars that don't. So, I usually only frequent the ones that I know that have drinks that I'd like to go to, and. There's not there's then the other side of that is the the old style pub if you will where the people who go there and they know what they want to drink and that's what they're going to have and so they don't those sort of places they know their audience and they don't feel the need to cater to a broader audience that's this is all anecdotal I guess because I don't there's no statistics that I'm basing this on just from what I see from going into bars around town really and I imagine you haven't been able to do that too much no, at the moment uh, no I've been uh, since I came back it's been pandemic the entire time so. Basically, the uh, the outdoor parts open during the, the warmer uh, the warmer months, but I haven't been to a bar in uh, probably what three or four months now. Actually, that's that's a good point. How is the um because you're you're currently in lockdown, um, not as severe as Melbourne um, went through, but you still are in lockdown. Well, kind of in lockdown light at the moment, so uh, it's not full lockdown. We are st- we are allowed to leave now, and they've, they've, this is only just as of this week that uh, bars and restaurants have started, or even last week it was, that bars and restaurants are allowed to open for 10 people, but most of them just aren't because 10 people is not worth it. You still can't have visitors into your house. Yeah, it's and it's cold outside. It's like zero degrees at the moment, so you don't really want to just be outside for the sake of it, so it's pretty <laughs> yeah. much feeling like house arrest anyway. And how's everyone coping with it? Because, you know, one of the things I really admire about Australians is, you know, for, for a, a, a culture that provides itself as, you know, rough individualism and, you know, larrikinism, we've, we've been willing to take constructive government direction for, for a wider purpose, by and large, pretty well. Yeah, and it's very impressive how so the places that had really strict restrictions in Australia have just knuckled down and done, the, done what needed to be done and they look, it worked. Yeah, here we, I think at one point we were up to 4,000 cases a day just in Ontario which was pretty nuts. And we've, we've got it down significantly from that, which is why the uh, the restrictions have eased a lot. But uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely still not great in terms of numbers over here. And there's just less of a willingness to abide by those restrictions that people, and less of a willingness by the government to actually enforce them, I think as well. Like I know in Melbourne, if you're out during the lockdown, the police would stop you. And if you didn't have a valid reason for being out, they would give you a $1,600 fine. I don't think the police actually just have the power to stop you here and ask you what you're doing outside, even though technically you're not allowed to be out. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a little bit more of that uh, you can't tell me what to do mentality here, but definitely not to the same extent as a lot of other countries, just slightly more than Australia has. Do you think that's the proximity to the the US? 100%. Okay, so it's it's, it's a little bit of the bleeding across the border of that US. You just get, I know that I get so much more news here from the US just from being close to the US. And I think there is definitely a spillover. I can drive to the US in 40 minutes from here. Okay. Yeah, so it's definitely a, a much more of a close relationship like that. So with the breweries being smaller, you know, bar operations and yet being, you know, restricted um, because of COVID, how has that affected the businesses? How, how have they survived? Have, have, is, is the word pivot part of the common vernacular there as well? There's definitely a lot more breweries putting beer in cans than they used to. Um, yeah, because a lot of the breweries that were only doing keg-only sales to other bars 
have basically just had to pivot and put their beer in cans just to op- like to, to keep operating. But we're very can heavy at Collective Arts. Like our, our brewery is way more uh, of a can focused brewery than a keg focused brewery. So it hasn't affected us nearly as much. And that was pre COVID. Uh, that was true pre COVID. Yeah. Yeah. We were lucky enough to a few years ago put in the 220 can, uh, can a minute canning line. So we uh, rolls pretty well. <laughs> yeah. So we're pretty lucky about that. Just going back to styles, which we started talking about a while ago. What drives style development there? Is it, you know, is it consumers sort of seeing what's going on internationally through um, social media or is it the proximity to the US? And so US beer, you said it was easier to sell into the US. Is it easy for the US to sell into Ontario, for example? No, it's really hard because the government controls what can be sold here. So I I don't have to be careful not to say anything that's technically not correct because uh, I don't know the laws 100% in terms of how liquor is allowed to be sold here. My understanding is, though, that the LCBO, the, the Control Board of Ontario, has to approve beers to get or alcohol that, that can get sold into Ontario. So, uh, and they do like the, the, I'm pretty sure the uh, one of the selectors for alcoholic products comes to the judging in Melbourne for the AIBA every year to try and select new products to bring over because it is such a, such a selection process about mm-hmm. what gets to go into the store. And how do you reckon that shapes the beers that local breweries make? Does that, I, I guess if there's a highly selected international um, and inter-Canada um, um, range of beers available, that creates a void that local breweries can fill, you know, if there yeah, is pent-up so demand. Yeah, what... We do. We are really close to the US, so there's definitely a spillover of what is trending in the US will trend here, and local breweries can be like, "That's a cool style. That's something that's not here. Let's do that." And I know we're talking about smoothie sours, and I guess that's one of the uh, <laughs> one of the uh, you know the, probably the perfect example of how a style that's I'm pretty sure it's from the US uh, has spilled over here. All in all of a sudden, everybody's making them. Yeah, so uh, it's definitely driven by what's what's trending in the US and what, as well as what people want here. Like obviously the first and foremost, it's what you, what your customer wants. But uh, I, I can't think of, I think there's only a couple of breweries that are, that are here that exclusively make English style ales or are focused on that sort of style. It's, if you don't have an IPA when you're opening a brewery here, you're, you're probably not doing yourself any favours. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm just sort of, you know, again, I'm, I'm guessing uh, about a lot of this stuff and, uh, I'd sort of love your thoughts on it, but I guess in a market that information travels, information about what's going on globally travels much more efficiently than those actual styles, um, there would be consumers going, gee, I wonder what that tastes like. And also it means that local breweries can trial those breweries to cater to that demand without being, you know, hit by a, a rush of imports so so there's not the you know the, the, there's an awareness and an interest in the styles that can be um, satisfied by local brewers yeah there's as well in addition to that there's definitely a real focus on freshness here like i see people on canadian you know beer social media they will post when things are you know more even more than two or three months old being like this is old like especially for things that are hop driven People are, they're pretty on it here with the sales in terms of, I would rarely see a beer more than six months old. 
Whereas they'd, I'd find it much more commonplace on a, on a shelf in Australia to see something that's pushing eight, nine months and still be in date, in inverted commas. Yeah, and, and that's what I was wondering. Is it very easy? Like, do you find yourself, you know, doing that 30-minute drive across the border to stock up on easily available, you know, beers in, in, in the US and then driving back with your, your research um, box? There's def- uh, there are border restrictions about how much you can bring back. But to be honest, I haven't been in Canada for that long and there's so many local places that I'm really just trying to check out <laughs> the local stuff at the moment. And I, as much as I can, I, well, obviously we're in a pandemic now, but normally I would try to go to an actual venue and try it there so I can actually get the experience of going to the venue and seeing what they're about, seeing their staff and seeing how the brewery operates and trying it fresh as opposed to getting a can from the LCBO that, you know, it might not be at its best. So then you can make a kind of accurate judgment on how the brewery is. How do they manage to get it so fresh? Is the LCBO, you know, just really efficient? Uh, I, I don't necessarily think the LCBO is that efficient. Like, uh, I'll be honest, I don't really go there that much because I'd much rather go out to a venue and have it in, in-house in Yep. at a bar as opposed to if I'm going to have a beer at home, I'll probably have my own beer. So uh, just, to, yeah, as opposed to picking up some cans and drinking it at home. At home. I guess that's partially my own preference is to actually go to a venue and have it as opposed to having it at home. And what do you think drives the craft beer that that, that visiting? Because I like I I really believe having seen the craft beer um, market evolve, um, but then also have, having seen how breweries have evolved, you know, and particularly small local breweries, that I'm reasonably convinced that you know a significant part of the reason that people go to the breweries and drink um, craft beer is less about you know they're converts to craft beer but they are converts to that culture of being in the place that makes it you know um it's like having coffee at the local roastery or you know don't you know you're connected to the product a little bit more and there's an attraction in that as much as there is in the attraction to the beer itself yeah i mean getting it from the source it just always seems like it's going to be a better idea and i think people know that that if you want something at its best you go where it's made and there's, there's, I mean, in the same way, that, and I guess winery is a little bit different, but uh, there's something special about going to a winery and trying it at the place that it's sourced, even though I don't imagine the freshness matters as much for that. But there's something kind of special about going to the place where it's produced. And I think people realise that and they feel it when they go in there. Breweries, they really do put an emphasis on trying to make it their own and make a vibe that they want to bring and an experience they want to bring to people when they go there. I mean, when you walk into, our tap room is quite small, at the moment, uh, but you walk in there and there is art everywhere. And there's every one of the, the candles that we've ever produced is in the back room on the wall. And you can walk into this room. It's filled with bottles from when we were bottling and all the different can, can designs that we've had and walk through and just see the transition and the, uh, yeah, all the different art. And it's, it's just really cool to go and see. And I think people do resonate with that when they go to a place and they'll remember it. It just seems a bit special. Is there a lot of variation? Like uh, the, 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 the smaller brew pubs catering to you know, like their own community or, you know, sometimes, you know, I find myself um, walking into some of the brew pubs, you know, in, in Australia and, but for the branding and, you know, the minor variations in beer styles, the vibe of the place is, you know, pretty much the same. And, you know, you can almost trace the history, you know, you can almost 
traced that industrial feel of a lot of brew pubs back to little creatures 20 years ago and there's a DNA that flows through with minor variations. Is there a distinction between the vibe and the feel and the aesthetic of um, brew pubs? There's definitely some cookie cutter, you know, I want to open a craft brewery and this is the starter pack sort of places. But there is like a huge number of places that really try and make it their own. And they really, they have a concept that they want to go by and that's what they do and they do it really well. And that's why I've been really trying to get out um, and see some some cool places around here. I mean, there's a there's a brewery that's maybe 40 minutes away from here that's in the middle of the wine country because Niagara is a wine region. And, and you go there and it looks like a winery and they have, they're growing their own hops outside and they have two separate breweries, one for sours and one for uh, one for normal, uh, regular ferment, uh, fermented beers. And you go there and it's such an experience to go there because the place is just beautiful. And you can tell that they started it with like a real concept of this is what we want to do. And it's, it's great. And I love going there. Mm-hmm. And that's why people go there, even though it's 40 minutes away from the city and, you know, you have to either take a bus there or have des- definitely have a driver because, yeah, you, you can't go out there, obviously, and drive 40 minutes home after a few drinks. So. And, and what are the challenges facing the, the Canadian breweries? You know, are, are you, particularly with a brewery that, as you said, cans and focuses on cans, are you guys getting hit by can shortages that we're hearing about in, in, in North America? I don't, I don't want to say I don't know. I'm pretty sure there are some issues with this, but I haven't really heard that much about it. The other difficult part of having a pandemic where everybody who works normally uh, in an office in the office isn't is working from home is I don't get to hear any of these things because I, I haven't seen most of the office staff in months because they're all working from home. And anecdotally, I think they're going crazy. <laughs> so, mm. and so, so what other challenges have you, know, I, I, have you got? You know, is, is there? an oversupply of breweries is uh, or is consumer growth um, expanding to match it and so there's there's no um, push on sales and I, I guess that's all within the context of that you are going yeah, through I mean, COVID at the moment. Well, yeah, well, I mean, outside of COVID, I'm pretty sure it, it's somewhat similar to Australia in terms of there's fierce competition to get tap points and you have to be pretty uh, forceful to try and get them. But... Uh, I'm not really privy to that much of this information. I could tell you so much more about the uh, the difficulty get of breweries getting on tap in Australia than I could here because <laughs> I actually were managing ma- managing bars in Australia and I got to see it firsthand about how many brewery reps would come through the door trying to sell you beer. And uh, I know it would be very similar here because there are so many breweries here. Are there the but, same uh, commercial ar- arrangements in Canada um, as there are here you know, with tap contracts and it's perfectly legitimate to sort of hand over five grand in return for porridge rights of, of a tap for a year? I'm sure it exists here, but anecdotally, I don't think it's to the same extent. I don't think the uh, ownership of craft breweries has reached, from the macro sense, has reached the same level as it kind of is in Australia, where you can go into a bar and they'll have 12, 13 different beers on and they're all from different breweries, but owned by the same company. Yeah. Because I've tried to keep up with here who, who owns who somewhat, but I don't think you'd see that quite as much. So, so what are your plans? You, you've only like you uh, had a brief spell back here in the at the start of COVID when you were doing a little bit of work at Moondog. Um, what what are your plans now that you're you're over there? Uh, well, I'm I'm planning on staying here for a while. I mean, one of the reasons I love working at this company is because I can just see such an upward trajectory for it. Like, just in the time that I've been here, the place has grown so fast, insanely fast, and I'm excited to be part of it. We've like we're into we're doing uh, gin now and canned gin cocktails and, you know, sparkling hard teas and just reaching into all of these things that I just 
couldn't see a, a year or two ago. And it's exciting. We just opened Toronto Brew Pub, which I'm actually going down there to brew one of my recipes in a few weeks. So that'll be fun. And uh, there's a Brooklyn facility opening. I think we've been hit pretty hard with COVID for that to try and get that up and running. But there's a Brooklyn facility going to open. Yep. And so, yeah, I don't really plan on going anywhere, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> this this company is just really exciting to work for. Well, tell, tell me a little bit about some of those beer adjacent products. And if you're making, uh, are you distilling the gin or have they got a separate, you know, have they got someone? There, There is a distillery in the works. Uh, but I know there's a whole bunch of red tape that's coming, so it, I believe it's produced offside at the moment. Right, but it is, but it, it will be. Uh, yeah, we are we are trying to get our own distillery up and running. And how about the and, sparkling hard tea? Yeah, so I guess that's kind of our answer to hard seltzer because I'm not a seltzer fan, to be perfectly honest. Um, but I find that the, the teas they definitely have a lot more flavour, and there's no sugar in them either. It's not like the uh, the, the twisted tea or whatever the the other, I, know, I forgot what they're called, the, the other alcoholic teas that, that are really sweet. They're just like a, a no sugar kind of alternative to beer and they do have a pretty good flavor to them. And I can see this summer, they're going to go absolutely nuts. We're making so much of it right now. It's insane. Talk me through how you make it. Is it like, is, is it tea that's dosed with alcohol or? Yeah. So it's like a malt based spirit and then uh, with like the tea infused and yeah, they're batched and then we carbonate it, can it and yeah tastes delicious but we you do have to pasteurize it to make sure it doesn't uh doesn't pop in the can <laughs> so what's next uh for you you're gonna, you're gonna hang around you know if you've got anything uh interesting on the horizon that uh yeah our, our listeners would be interested in well they're probably not interested in it but i'm really actually keen to just go to a pub and have a pub meal because i haven't done it in so <laughs> oh, long <laughs> we, we've got a lot of melbourne um, listeners and they will uh, be nodding their head going yeah wait till you do it i i I remember my brother on the first day out of lockdown or the first time I went to a pub in Melbourne sent me a photo of his partner just crying as a, their, their palmer came out because <laughs> they just hadn't seen one in so long. And it, it, yeah. Hey, hey, well, I can't, yeah, I, I can't even imagine how it would have been for them. I mean, we've been in lockdown here for a while, but it just hasn't been as strict as Melbourne was. Yep. So I, yeah, I can't imagine how that would have been. Well, be sure to share with us what that experience is like when you can unfettered go out and you know enjoy the experience but also let me know because Brisbane had a much shorter um, so much less brutal lockdown than you know places like Melbourne did in, in in particularly in the second wave but I remember that after we'd sort of had you know like a month or two where we couldn't go to restaurants and things and I went out for, to my first restaurant meal and I my first thought when I looked at the pricing, um, was, gee, I hope, you know, that's expensive because I'd been really doing a lot of cooking at home and playing around with things I traditionally wouldn't have cooked at home to, you know, have interesting food. And then so suddenly looked at the the cost. And I was much more mindful of the experience I was getting at the venue um, than I was of just the fact of being out. And I'd be really interested in what your perspective is or, you know, what, what your observation is, uh, you know, once you're able to do that, whether you have a similar um, thinking yeah, I think it'll be hard to tell though until things actually open up fully because it's not like in, in Australia it seems like the, when the numbers get down, things open up pretty broadly mm. as in you can go to a place and there's still like 50 people in there, whereas here the places have just opened and they're at 10. Yep. It doesn't matter how big your venue is, you can still only have 10. So it's just the the atmosphere and the vibe is just not the same and you don't get the same experience going there and having a drink and having a meal with someone. So yeah, when, until things actually open up fully, which I can't see happening until at least the middle of summer here. Well, and I think that's where we're really lucky 
being a like a, a, a very large island, but an island um, that doesn't have the same porous land borders, um, that makes it much harder to uh, to to to, to isolate and uh, then contain internally. Yeah, and as well here, especially with the just the weather itself makes it much more of a challenge here because when it is negative ten outside, you can't go outside, and so people naturally will want to associate indoors. In summer, like last summer, things were almost open fully just because most uh, bars here have or, and breweries have a patio, like an outdoor seating area, and so the but they would be largely open because it was much less risky than to try to sit indoors. But during the winter months here, where it, you, you physically can't sit outside, it's not safe to do so. <laughs> so it, obviously, obviously, uh, yeah, when people want to cram indoors, you just yeah, there's going to be much more virus spreading. Yeah. So. I, I, I'd imagine you're not going to enjoy a cold beer quite as much in winter there if you're sitting outdoors. No, unless they serve it to you at uh, cellar temperature and it's you know above pushing nine percent, so it warms you up a little. But then it's as much the alcohol that's warming you up yeah, as, as the beer. Exactly. I'd imagine. Hey, do, do they do mulled beer? Is mulled beer a thing? Uh, not that I've seen so much. I I haven't been to a place that's had mulled beer, or I don't really see that much mulled cider here either. I think it's more of an English thing, really. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah no, I, I just had uh, mulled beer in Germany uh, in, in the middle of winter, where you just sort of get a, a dunkel, and then they've got an oven filled with, you know, steel pokers, and they just sort of pull one out, drop drop it into the cold beer, which heats it up, and also cauterizes, I'd imagine, the sugars to to give it a bit of a you know a, a, an interesting flavour, and yeah, that was quite an experience. Just like a miniature version of the old stone beers. Yeah, well, it, it ready to serve, <laughs> like pre- yeah. done in front of you. So, uh. oh, I, I did go to a brewery in Michigan once where they had uh, a thing on the menu uh, where you could essentially get your beer smoked at the bar. They have one of those uh, kaloshes, like one of the glass kaloshes that, uh, and they'd basically just have like a wood smoker and they'd fill, the, put the beer on a on a wooden board and put this kalosh fill, and then fill it with smoke from underneath and just sit it there for a couple of minutes before they served it to you and you're drinking it being like, yep, beer tastes like smoke now. It, it, it sounds like an interesting experiment. Yeah. One thing that I, back to the, I guess the bars though, one thing I can, that is a little bit different here is the tipping culture is a, is definitely a thing. Like in, a, in a, you know, 18% to 20% tip is pretty standard here. So a bar operating with 10 people can still afford to run if people are tipping normally because their staff will still make a wage even if there's not that many people in there. But is, you have to worry about do the, they the have the, the same um, wage structure? Because one of the things about Australia is that there is a, a minimum wage that you know in, in, has you know like it, it's, a, it's a, a largely living wage for um, hospitality workers that they can live on without the tips, and so the tips recognise good service. Whereas I always get the sense in America, particularly, that there's a fairly low wage structure, and the tips just make the job. Survive, you know, make, make it a living wage. I'm fairly sure in most of the US, the entire amount of your paycheck is in a lot of uh, hospitality is taken in tax, and all you make is your tips. Oh wow! They, okay, I'm pretty sure that's the, pretty sure that's how it works in a lot of the states. But uh, here, there is it's kind of a middle ground. So the the minimum wage I think is fourteen dollars an hour here. So it's not that high. But then when you add tips and stuff on top of that in the hospitality venue, you can make a decent amount of money. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and as you'd sort of uh, sort of hope for, you know. A country with a similar, you know, a similar-ish sort of uh, background to to Australia, um, or, or the, the modern country with a, a similar background to Australia. I guess uh, I mean the way you can look at it is 
a pint of pale ale here co- costs about half an hour's minimum wage. Same okay. as it does in Australia. Okay. Okay. That, well, that, yeah. That, yeah. So, so, so that, that, that works out about the same. Although um, the general cost of beer here is much, much less. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, you, if you're paying $5 for a double IPA, that's, that's pretty normal. Okay. In a tall can. In a yeah. tall can. Okay, and and yeah. largely because of the, the the tax difference. Yeah, I would say I would assume so. Like the the ABV percentage going up doesn't seem to increase the the cost of the beer as much as it would. I mean, I I think I saw someone some people selling you know to double IPA tall cans in Australia takeaway for fourteen dollars eight each, which if you told that to someone here, they'd just about have a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, I remember the first time I saw, I was I was in a Denver bottle shop and just couldn't believe you know, what a six-pack price was. You know, you're getting a six-pack for the price of, you know, a, a, a single um, in some bottle shops in Australia. Yeah, I, I think I went into Green Flash in uh, in San Diego and there was a sign on the wall that said, all pints, 350. And I was like, what? <laughs> how, 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 do they, how do they make any money? Yeah. Well, I guess they probably did because they closed down now. But anyway... Decide the point. Yeah. Well, Matt Hennessy, I'm just mindful of the time, and uh, it, it's it's the end of your day, um, and it's the beginning of ours. So, look, thank thank you for being a listener of uh, you know, Radio Brews News, but you know, thank you for being our uh, Canadian uh, correspondent and giving us a bit of an insight into uh, what you're doing over there and the the, the local market. Thank you. I hope I didn't uh, butcher any of the facts too terribly. I mean, a lot of it is anecdotal, but. Uh doing the best I can. Oh, no, well, we, we, we take it with the rider that you're not a, you know, like you, you're not a Canadian law expert or a Canadian excise expert, but uh, you're certainly your observations uh, have, have been very valuable. Fantastic. Thank you. And that was Matt Hennessy. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Cryomalt. With over 25 years in the field, Cryomalt is dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. They are your premium brewing partner and they are our premium podcasting partner. And they are proud sponsors of the Radio Brews News channel. And we're very appreciative of that sponsorship, especially this week, as I now have to send one of our exclusive Yeti Rambler mugs to Canada, which will hopefully arrive in time for the warmer weather that Matt's about to enjoy.